That familiar music, of course, is the main theme to the legendary science fiction series Star Trek. And I wanted to play it today because recently the world of science fiction lost a very important person. Her name was D.C. Fontana, Dorothy Catherine Fontana. And she is one of the people who really helped shape Star Trek, the original series. She passed away on the 2nd of December. And I want to replay an interview which I was privileged to record with her back in 2006. The occasion was the 50th anniversary of the airing of the first episode of Star Trek, the original series. And in this interview, she talks not only about her participation in Star Trek as one of its most important writers and story editors, but also her career as a writer in television at a time when not very many women were part of that world. Here's that interview, again, from 2006. I wonder if you could just say a word about the sort of circuitous route by which you ultimately got to begin writing for television. I think it is something that you had aspired to do for a long, long time. But uh, this was at a point in time when probably uh, most writers for television, and particularly some of the genres you were interested in, uh, were not typically women. Uh, Tell our listeners about the way in which you were able to uh, make this happen for yourself. Well, I was a production secretary for Samuel A. Peoples at uh, Review Studios, which was located, and they'd actually bought the Universal Studios. Um, we were doing a Western series called Overland Trail, which only lasted about 18, 20 episodes, something like that. And then Sam went directly into his Pat Garrett, Billy the Kid series, a half-hour Western called The Tall Man. Um, Sam knew that I had written short stories since the time I was 11 years old and wanted to get into the business uh, of writing. I had been in production. Um, and uh, he said, if you tell me a good story, I'll buy it. So I, we watched the tall man develop, and I came to him with a story called The Bounty for Billy, and he bought it. It was uh, early 1960, and I was 21 years old. Hmm. Amazing. And after that, I wrote uh, another story, uh, and then I said, I want to do a script. And he said, go ahead. So I did two scripts for The Tall Man. After that, I sold a story to Frontier Circus, which was another show that Sam was producing. Um, and I did a rewrite on a script called, uh, for a series called Shotgun Slade, which was a half-hour Western starring Scott Brady. Um, so I was getting work because of my connections within the production you know, uh, of review studios and the series I was working for. And I always tell this story because it still brings a smile to my face. The guest star on the very first story I told to television was a gentleman named Leonard Nimoy. Wow. And, uh, so I have known him, or had known him, since 1960. Incredible. I went down on the set and we chatted a little bit. He was very nice to a newbie writer. <laughs> uh, and, of course, uh, we kind of had a relationship later on, you know, on this series called Star Trek. Yes, that a couple <laughs> of people have heard of. Yes. I, I read something about your earliest days in Hollywood. You had uh, been... Uh, station, so to speak, in New York City for a while, but then made the move to Los Angeles. And I think one of the first jobs you got in Los Angeles was really as a typist more than anything. Uh, and and the way I've heard the story told is that as you're typing these scripts for, I don't know, Leave it to Beaver or certain shows, you're thinking to yourself, I think I could do this, and I could maybe do this even better than some of these writers. Is is that story true? Well, 
not quite, almost, but not quite. Actually, I worked in uh, New York uh, for about three months after I graduated uh, from college. I got an associate in arts degree in business from Fairleigh Dickinson University in New Jersey, where I'm from. Um, I saw this job posted in uh, the New York Times, and uh, I went and applied for it. It was at Columbia Pictures, but it was really Screen Gems. And the job was a junior secretary to the head of Screen Gems, uh, Ralph Cohn. And um, I got the job, and I worked there actually uh, from June to almost the end of July, about two months. And then my boss dropped dead. Hmm. So I figured maybe there's not too much of a you know, uh, market here for me. I'm, I'm going to think about something else. Uh, but during the time that I was in Mr. Cohn's office, uh, of course, as the president of Screen Gems, he got copies of all the television scripts for the series they were doing. And as they came across my desk, that's when I started to think, you know, I think I could do this. <laughs> and of course, uh, so it really started in New York, um, and I worked uh, temporary in New Jersey until September. Saved my money for a trip out to Los Angeles, and I told my mother, um, "I'm going out to Los Angeles for a two-week vacation. I'm going to apply for jobs out there." In television. Uh, if I don't get them, I'll be home. Otherwise, I get a job and I stay. So she was all right with that, and I got a job within a week after I arrived here at Review Studios. Mm -hmm. And yes, I was in the steno pool where we were typing scripts. Uh, and I love to tell this story, too. Uh, one of the scripts we were typing was Psycho. Ooh. And, um, you know, Robert Block's uh, original story, he also did the script, as I recall. Um, and uh, I thought it was really cool. And I was asked to take the finished typed pages up to Mr. Hitchcock's office, which I did. And I walked in on a production meeting not knowing, and Mr. Hitchcock was very kind. He just directed me to the person who should be taking these pages. And later on, I became a very good friend of Robert Block's because he was a very good friend of Sam Peebles, my boss. Hmm. So connections, connections. <laughs> <laughs> it's meant everything, hasn't it? Oh, yes. Your, your involvement with Star Trek began as the secretary to Gene Roddenberry, production who, of course, secretary. production secretary. Uh, and it was only after the fact, somewhat, that you actually were able to secure your first writing assignment uh, for the series, which is what we all remember you for. Can you just say a word, though, about the kind of work that you did for Gene Roddenberry before that first writing opportunity came your way? Well, here's the thing. Uh, I was, when I was at Metro, uh, I had gone there with Samuel A. Peebles. He was doing a movie. And when he finished writing it, he decided to move on, and I decided to stay. This was in 1963. Uh, so it was roughly hmm, early summer. And I saw a job on the board. There's that you know, board that's saying to put up a job, and it was for the, working as a secretary for the associate producer of a new series called The Lieutenant. I went in and applied, and I was soon working for Del Reisman, who was the associate producer, and Gene Roddenberry was the creator and executive producer of the show. So that's where I met Gene. And I was on the show uh, through the filming of Lieutenant. And uh, along about December, uh, Gene's own secretary was stricken with a bad case of appendicitis and was in the hospital for a month and home recovering. So I worked for Gene because I knew the job, and someone else filled in for me with Dell. And that's how I got to know Gene Roddenberry better. And he knew, he found out, that I had already written six scripts or stories and scripts. And so I had some kind of track record, and he was okay with that. Um, then I went back to working for Dell when, uh, his, when Gene's secretary came back. But at the end of the show, uh, in spring of 1964, we knew the lieutenant was going to end, and Gene called me into his office and said, uh, take a look at this, tell me what you think. And he gave me about 
10, 12 pages of something called Star Trek. And I was impressed with it. It was different. It was the USS Yorktown. It was Captain Robert April. But there was this Martian named Spock that I thought was really interesting. And I said to Gene, when I handed the pages back and told him I really liked it, um, who, who plays Spock? Who do you have in mind for Spock? And he pushed a picture across the desk to me. It was Leonard Nimoy, who had done a role on the lieutenant for us. So I was happy, <laughs> and it never was anybody but Leonard Nimoy. I, I keep repeating this. There have been rumors and legends that other people applied or were tested or were considered. No, never, <laughs> always Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> was one of the best things, of course, that ever happened to anybody, that right. uh, he and that role yeah. came together. Yeah, but it, it, it took, you know, uh, two pilots, uh, and finally we got into production on the show. But as a production secretary, executive secretary, I had to type all of Gene's scripts. He usually typed them out rough himself, wrote hand notes, and then I had to put them into proper you know, script format so that they could go out and be copied. Uh, I took care of any appointments, uh, phone calls, uh, you know, the usual office kind of stuff. Um, but Gene was very actively involved on the first 13 episodes, and then Gene L. Kuhn came in um, as producer. Uh, John D.F. Black had left as a story editor. He went over to Universal. Was it Universal? Uh, he went to another studio to do a... Um, a movie. And so he and his uh, secretary, Mary, uh, moved on, and uh, Gene L. Kuhn came in, and uh, we had another story editor for a while, uh, about 13 weeks, and he was okay, but he wasn't quite what they wanted. And during that time, Gene Roddenberry said to me, um, well, I had written Charlie X, because I was one of the first writers. I had written Charlie X. In fact, Gene said, you know the show better than anybody. What, 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 what what story do you want to do? And I picked Charlie X, which is his story, my, my teleplay. Uh, then I came up with a new story, totally mine, uh, Tomorrow's Yesterday, which was where we go back in time and we pick up a, a, a fighter pilot whose son is going to be one of the first men on Mars, so we have to keep, save this guy's life. <laughs> and um, then uh, we had lost our second story editor, and Gene said to me, Here, here's the script. It's called This Side of Paradise. I think it was called The Way of the Spores at that time. It became The Side of Paradise. And um, he said, if you rewrite this to my satisfaction and NBC satisfaction, you're going to be the story editor. So I said, okay. So I, I did The Side of Paradise. And one of the first things wrong with it was the, the spores out of the contamination were in this little cave. So if you walked into the cave, you, you were contaminated, but the easy answer was don't go in the cave. So I had them all over the planet in, in the plants, which was, you could not escape that. So everybody would be affected. And then the second thing was, it was a love story for Sulu and Leila Kailomi. And I told Gene, this is a love story for Spock. And he said, go write it. Hmm. So Paradise came out uh, as a script and ultimately as a, a very much loved uh, episode. And uh, I got the job as story editor, which you... then meant with working with Roddenberry, Kuhn, you know, Robert Jessman, our production uh, producer, uh, we had, uh, I had to coordinate scripts, I had to rewrite scripts, I had to work with writers, hear pitches with the others, you know, uh, with Roddenberry and, and Kuhn, and uh, decide who goes and who doesn't, uh, as far as, uh, you know, yes, we buy this one, yes, we, no, we don't. Uh, so, it, a story editor is an involving job, but it requires a lot of working with writers, and we had a lot of freelance writers coming in. We didn't have a staff of 10 writers. We had people who came in, pitched ideas. Some of them were asked to come in because they were established science fiction writers. Um, but we worked with a lot of writers. If you look at the credits on the 
series, you will see there were a good many writers, some of whom repeated, others just did one. Hmm. We're speaking with uh, Dorothy Fontana about her involvement in Star Trek, the original series, which debuted 50 years ago uh, tonight, uh, on the 8th of September. Um, a couple things come to mind as you mentioned some of these great episodes, which uh, were the, the means by which you first began writing for this uh, wonderful series. Charlie X, according to Mark Cushman and his wonderful uh, book, These Are the Voyages, in that first volume, says that this the idea for Charlie X was Gene Roddenberry's, and he had, by that point, pretty much discarded it. And you were the one who saw this story and saw its potential. And that brings to mind the fact that one of the most important uh, jobs for anybody working on a series, including especially the story editor, I suppose, is being able to see potential in stories and to figure out that this story is great for this series, this uh, story maybe not so much. Um, can you just talk about the challenge of seeing potential in a story, even one that's maybe very rough around the edges, but could be potentially transformed into a great Star Trek episode? Well, Charlie X uh, is not entirely as you put it. Uh, Charlie X was in the Bible as one of the examples of the stories we wanted to do. Uh, so this was the material that was going out to every writer who came in, you know, uh, wanting to be on Star Trek. When Gene asked me what do you want to do, because you've known this, you've been with me from the beginning on this, I said, I want to do Charlie X. And so I took his story, expanded it, and then wrote the script. Uh, and uh, I, I thought it was brilliantly done on, on screen. But th- what attracted me about Charlie X was, here's this kid, abandoned on a planet by accident, um, being raised by aliens who know nothing about being human. So all he knew was how to protect himself, how to provide for himself, but he didn't know how to be human. And that's one of the themes I like to hit, especially in science fiction stories. How, how do you become a human? What kind of human being are you? And Charlie had to learn how to be a human being, and ultimately he failed. And according to Mark Cushman, part of what helped you resonate with this was that you had two teenage brothers. And so you could, in a sense, put yourself in the mind of a teenage boy and all that you go through when you're at that age trying to figure out who you are. And, of course, that was the, uh, that was the, ch- the, the conundrum of, of this young Charles Evans. Mm-hmm. Yes, one of my brothers was uh, in high school and the other one was uh, just in grade, the higher grades in grade school. Uh, so, yeah, I didn't understand teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> well, Charlie X, of course, is one of the most effective and dramatic uh, episodes of the series, and it was the second one to air. So uh, a week after The Man Trap, the first uh, episode that aired in that first season, Charlie X was uh, proudly paraded before the public. Yes. Um, you had a, a, a central role in the crafting of this wonderful episode you've already mentioned called Tomorrow is Yesterday, and one of the things I want to ask you about that is, that was one of the first episodes in that first season in which there is a, a little heavier dose of some comedy. Uh, it's not, it isn't a comedy. It's actually a very serious, dramatic episode. But there is this light touch at many moments. And uh, that evidently was maybe also something that, uh, that you saw as a potential avenue for this series that maybe hadn't been explored t- all that, all that extensively before that. Do you remember thinking very consciously about that, or did those little subtle comic moments just sort of spring naturally out of the story? Mostly, they came naturally out of the story. Uh, I, you know, putting myself into the position of our pilot, looking around this 
spaceship. My God, it's a spaceship. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it's the future. Uh, but what is this machine over here? Oh, it produces food at my request. Uh, you know, <laughs> and and uh, what, what, what's this thing? Transporter what? You know, <laughs> it does what? <laughs> um, and we are... In this day, now I understand there are companies uh, fooling around with transporting small things now, not real human beings, but trans being able to transport an object from here to there with a transporter, which is kind of interesting. Hmm. Uh, I just really like the idea of, again, it's, it's, a, it's a stranger in a strange land kind of situation, and this, this very intelligent you know, pilot who's going to be significant to the future is looking around the future, and uh, what does he find? What does he see? How does he understand it? How does he take it? And that, to me, was was, was fun to to put myself in his position and say, what would I do? What what would I be looking for? And um, it was fun to write. It was well done. Uh, and I bounced off uh, the naked time, where we were thrown back in sp- in time, and uh, you know, I bounced off John D. F. Black's idea of the time travel and how we get back and all of that, and then put it into tomorrow is yesterday. Mm, with brilliant effect, I must say. Oh, thank you. You've already mentioned the fact that uh, when Star Trek needed a new story editor, you were handed this script which uh, needed polishing, and uh, the result ultimately was another great success of the first season, This Side of Paradise. Which well, it needed a major rewrite, unfortunately. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, want, I want to ask you about the task of rewriting versus the challenge of creating your own story. And, of course, you did that, too. There are a number of Star Trek episodes in which it is your story right from the start, uh, which, of course, probably got a little bit of rewriting from others. But there's something else about when you are handed something that already exists and you have to make it better. Can you just say a word about that process, and particularly as uh, the challenges that were involved in doing that for a show like Star Trek, typically what kind of things were you often asked to do uh, when it came to the rewriting process? A lot of times it was the characters just weren't right. Uh, What would this character do in this situation? How would he or she respond? You know, uh, also a dialogue fairly often could be a problem. I mentioned the two problems on this side of paradise, which was the confining of the spores, which made it not such a great threat. So I, so I came up with a way to fix that. And the fact that it was, as much as I adore George Takei and his character of Sulu, it wasn't the right story for him to have a love affair. It was a Spock story, because under the influence of the spores, we could find out who Spock really was behind that Vulcan exterior, that practically iron exterior of his, and was gone. And now we see who Spock is uh, at heart. And, I, I, again, you know, I, I always want to know what a human being is, how they are, who they are. And uh, this was a great opportunity to do that. And uh, Jill Ireland, who's absolutely gorgeous, is Layla Kalomi, wonderful. Um, you know, she, she bounced off Spock really well. I, I, at the time, because I was story editor on the show, by then the time that we were shooting it, um, I went to dailies every day, and she was in dailies every day looking to make sure that her performance was up to snuff and that people liked it. And, you know, uh, she's a lovely woman uh, and extremely talented. Um, But the love story had to be Spock. In my mind, it was the only answer. It had to be to make it an important story. And Ralph Sinensky reminded me that uh, in the original filming, 
in the original script, it is not indicated that Spock is swimming, swinging from a limb, you know, a tree limb or anything like that. We, we just had to, we were playing the scene, and they happened to be out in the field, and there was this tree nearby, and Ralph looked at it, the director, and uh, Leonard looked at it, and they both looked at each other and said, let's play with the tree. <laughs> so that's how the action in that particular sequence came about. I didn't write it that way, but it, it, it absolutely works. And again, mm. we see something more of Spock's interior, that he has a playful side, that there is still a bit of a child inside him. Right. You are responsible for one of the most significant episodes of the second season, Journey to Babel, in which we uh, meet uh, Spock's parents. And uh, his father, who is Vulcan, his mother, who is human. And I believe Mark Cushman, as he is discussing that episode, I think quotes you as referring to yourself as the the resident Vulcan expert on the series, or words to that effect. Not that nobody else had knowledge of what Vulcans were all about, but but it, in many cases, people would turn to you, and, and you were responsible for maybe enriching the concept of who Vulcans were and, and, and then who Spock was uh, as, as someone who was both uh, Vulcan and human. That must have been especially uh, intriguing, a, a, a wonderful challenge for any writer to be thinking about an entirely uh, different species and, uh, and in a sense to have a hand in, in crafting what that species would represent. Well, nobody else had been Vulcan, of course, just our Mr. Spock. So we could do anything we wanted. Uh, but I was involved with the character. I really loved the character. And by being able to portray him with some of his human side showing in This Side of Paradise, that got me thinking about what else can we do. And um, uh, we had briefly mentioned, I believe it's at the end of This Side of Paradise, that my father was a Vulcan ambassador, my mother was a school teacher. Yes. And, and, and that's all I say about them. Um, and that got me thinking, gee, what a combination. Let's think about that for a second. How does that now affect Spock? How does the Vulcan side, you know, meet the human side? Who are those parents? And um, after the, the more I thought about it, the more the story started to grow, and I came up with a, a Journey to Babel, where I introduced a whole lot of other aliens, too, but you're most interested in who the Vulcans were. And yes. How Sarek would react, and how does Amanda react? How do they relate to each other? How do they relate to Spock? Um, and it was fun to do, but I think I was the person who was most engaged in who is Spock. Uh, at the end, I, I said this uh, to other people. At the end of the first season, uh, while we were still on stage uh, uh, filming, I went down to the set and I got, got time with every one of the, the key actors. Uh, Walter Koenig as Chekhov wasn't involved yet, but I got all the others sat them down for at least 20 minutes or half an hour and said, you've been living in this character's skin for a year now. What do you know about them? What have you learned? And mm. they each told me something about how they had been thinking about the characters and what they were bringing to it, um, what they felt the background of the character was that we hadn't covered yet uh, in any shape or form. We hadn't made any reference. Uh, we didn't know that uh, uh, Uhura, for instance, uh, spoke Swahili as well as English as well as she does, mm -hmm. uh, etc. So I, I incorporated all these into notes for Gene Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn, and uh, they went over them and they said, yeah, let's put this in the Bible. This is mm. good information for new writers coming in, and even writers who have written on the show, this is new information for them to absorb and use. Right. So uh, it, was, it was a good exercise. I did the same thing at the end of the second season. Um, I don't know if it was ever used, but uh, definitely the, the 
material that I gathered from our actors at the end of the first season about their characters went into the Bible for everyone's use and understanding. And while Leonard did not say anything about his, quote, parents, uh, I had been thinking about it, and that's where it went into uh, Journey to Babel. Right. And, of course, that's one great example of how this show was so much more than just the monster of the week and aliens shooting uh, laser guns. I mean, this was also such a powerful, personal kind of drama uh, unlike anything that had ever been seen on television before, particularly when it came to the genre of science fiction. Well, uh, here, here's the thing. Roddenberry first posited it at, as a sales point, as Wagon Train to the Stars. Wagon Train was a big series then. And uh, as you know, it, it had Robert Horton and Ward Bond and, and other people who were the, the people connected with the Wagon Train. But you weren't so much connected... Uh, involved every week with the wagon train and where it was going so much as who was in it. And they had incredible guest stars. They had Betty Davis and, and, you know, wonderful, wonderful guest stars. And they told that person's story every week. So it it was, in a way, a continuing series, but with a long, strong anthological touch. Hmm. Uh, it, It was a little bit more of an anthology, because it wasn't so much about the journey. It was about the people making the journey. And in a way, we brought that into Star Trek, it's not about the spaceship. It's not about uh, the voyage so much as seeking out new worlds, new civilizations, et cetera. You know, bold to go where no man has gone before. Right, and what uh, those encounters are going to mean. Right. And, Absolutely. And, and these are the stories we wanted to tell, hiding stories about racism and sexism and political things going on in the Vietnam War, which nobody else could, could mention, but we did it in the guise of science fiction, and other stories that were important to our time in 1966 and into 1969, uh, but do, doing the science fiction. Hmm. And we got the message out. People understood, a lot of people understood what we were saying and doing. Hmm. And I think part of that made it so strongly attractive to audiences. Hey, they're telling stories nobody else is telling. Absolutely, and telling them so well. A last quick question. Sure. Once Star Trek went off the air, it eventually returns in the form of an animated series, yes. and you had a very strong role, I think, as story editor for for that. Story it, editor it, and associate producer, it, yes. It must have been so strange, given the, the budget headaches that Star Trek itself was always facing, and increasingly so as it went on, to be in the realm of animation where suddenly you could place characters anywhere and, and, and aliens could be uh, of, of any sort of outlandish appearance and you didn't have to worry about, in a sense, the bottom line. There were also other limitations, but I wonder if you could just say a word about what it was like to craft Star Trek episodes in this new format of animation where there were new possibilities not possible before. Well, obviously, we could tell stories about aliens that were different and, and more exotic or, uh, than we could live action. We didn't have to worry about where the zippers were and things like that. <laughs> uh, and, of course, great planets, great spaceships, all this other stuff. Uh, our constraints, we did have budgetary constraints because there was a budget, and we did have to pay the actors. Um, and... Um, the only one we couldn't squeeze in was was Walter Koenig as Chekhov, but we did give him an opportunity to write a script, which he did very well. Oh, yes. And that began him on his uh, his writing career as well as being an actor and later on the director. Hmm. Um, but um, the one constraint that was uh, important to us is when we were doing the hour show, it was 65-page scripts for 54 minutes of storytelling time. And you could do A, B, and C stories. You know, we 
strong support lines and, and, and uh, main action line, main story line, et cetera. On a half an hour at that time, you had about 25, no, 30 pages for 23 minutes of storytelling time. So we really had to cut stories down, keep them tight, keep them moving, keep them interesting, but do it in 23 minutes. Hmm. And in th- two acts, a teaser in two acts. So it was a little different from a teaser in four acts, you know, act breaks difference, length difference, uh, keeping it tight on the storylines, main action line, and maybe a, a, a small support B line. So it was a different kind of storytelling. I thought we did it well. I we think were able so to too. Do stories that we never would have been able to do on the main uh, one-hour show, and it did win a Humanitas Award in its second uh, season of only six episodes. Hmm. And at least one Emmy, uh, yeah. and 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 deservedly so. And of course, Star Trek goes on to uh, further life as uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation and films and so on. Yes. And Dorothy Fontana, you are responsible for so much of what made Star Trek great. Thank so you. on behalf of all of us who love this series, we thank you for all you've contributed to the series, and I thank you for joining me today on the morning show to talk with you uh, in honor of this great anniversary. Very best wishes to you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Bye-bye.